Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. On this podcast, we've mostly explored what we can do as individuals to grow the strengths we need to become ever more internally resourced, so we're able to overcome the often challenging external circumstances that life has a tendency of throwing at us. The modern workplace can be an emotional minefield. Many people feel that they're expected to walk a delicate tightrope between being open, personable, and seemingly emotionally authentic, but without oversharing or being a bit too sensitive or otherwise allowing the very real emotional ups and downs that affect all of us to creep into the meeting room. And the ways that the workplace has changed due to technology have only blurred the lines between the personal and the professional even more. For most of us, about a third of our lives will be spent at work, learning how to work with and manage our internal lives, including our emotions, in that setting is a huge part of the task of becoming a reasonably healthy, reasonably emotionally intelligent human. To help us do just that, today I'm joined by Liz Fosslane. Liz is the head of content and editorial at Humu, a company that uses behavioral science to make work better, and the co-author and illustrator of the thoroughly wonderful Wall Street Journal bestseller, no Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. Before we get started today, I would like to take a moment to let you know about Rick's Foundations of Wellbeing online program. The Foundations program is a year-long program aimed at developing 12 key inner resources that help us through the long road of life. It is a absolutely fantastic, deep offering that has helped thousands of people change their lives for the better. It's Rick's flagship offering. It's his deepest program. If you're interested in his work, that's absolutely the one to go to. And if you're interested in learning more about it, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. We also have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, you'll receive 10% off the purchase price of the program. So that said, on to the meat of our episode. So Liz, thanks for taking the time out of your day to do this. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I think that anyone who's taken the time to listen to this podcast in the past is probably pretty open to acknowledging that individual emotions do play a big part in the workplace. But even if somebody feels that way, they're not necessarily going to be drawn to exploring it as a primary topic. So to kind of start with a little bit of background here and work our audience into it, what made you want to go from working as, I believe it was an economic analyst at a consulting firm, to exploring the importance of our internal lives and of emotional intelligence in general in the workplace? I think an important piece of context is that my parents are academic immigrants, and it was very much get a quantitative degree and then get a job that is good and stable and then do that job for as long as you possibly can. I did work as an economic consultant and it checked all the boxes. I put on a fancy suit. I went into a fancy building. It was on a high floor. As a consultant, I was 22. It felt really important to be consulting people. Of course. My dad kept saying, what are they paying you for? What do you know? <laughs> and then I found out Pretty quickly, I realized that I really didn't enjoy the work. So it was a lot of statistical modeling. There wasn't as much interaction with people as you know there had been in college. And then there was very little creativity in the sense of I wasn't, you know, I wasn't designing anything. I was really just in the weeds writing code. And again, that's great for some people. For me, it really wasn't. And I didn't at the time, understand that you could 
listen to those emotions or that you could even have a conversation with your manager saying something Mm -hmm. like, I've identified the parts of my job that I really enjoy and that play to my strengths. How can I do more of this work and maybe less of this other work? How, How might that affect my opportunities at this company? Or even after two years saying, hey, you know, I'm just starting out my career. Here's something I'd love to do. Do you know anyone? Like these are conversations you can sometimes have if you've built a rapport with your boss. And I just didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I suppressed everything I was feeling to be this professional person. And what happened was that I just burnt out. At the end of my time there, I was dreading waking up in the morning. The thought of getting a promotion made me sick with anxiety because it just meant I would have to do more of the work I was doing. And even then, I still didn't realize that I needed to figure something else out. I just ended up leaving once I could no longer make it into the office. And that's when I became fascinated by, okay, so we have these things called emotions. It doesn't (laughs) seem like you can actually control them, even if you try really hard. I mean, what I've learned since then is when you do so much emotional suppression, you really cut off, you know, you just mentioned we spend so much of our time at work. And if you're not paying attention to how you feel, you cut off the opportunity to do something that you really enjoy. And obviously you're still going to have bad days, but I have a job now that... I love my coworkers. I really am fascinated by the work. It's exciting for me to go into work. I've always said that my metric for success in life is if on the last day of my vacation, I'm not dreading (laughs) going Mm, back into mm -hmm. the office. And I've come to this job because I did all the work of how do you figure out what gives you lightness? And then also on your own end, like when you have a bad day at work, what can you do to make it feel better? Again, what conversations can you have with your manager, with your colleagues, all just to make work better? We spend so much time there. We put so much energy into it. It shouldn't be like soul sucking. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting that you start there for a lot of different reasons, one of which is that you're describing being somebody who apparently naturally was pretty well emotionally regulated, maybe even a little emotionally overregulated. And they're kind of two different ends of the spectrum, right? On the one hand, you can be somebody who kind of bottles up those feelings. On the other side, maybe in the workplace, you're a little excessively expressive in one way or another, just being a little bit too variable with your expression of emotions coming across as quote unquote unreliable, or some of the other kind of negative emotional stereotypes that maybe we'll get into a little bit. The other reason that I think it's really interesting is because you're talking here a lot about feeling really good about what you're doing and feeling a real psycho-emotional attachment to it, the importance of loving and valuing your work. But one of the things that really struck me about the book is that you basically begin the meat of it with what was at least to me a pretty interesting and surprising suggestion, which is actually to be less passionate about your job. So why did you choose to start there also with your co-author, who I want to name really quickly here, Molly? And what did you mean by that? Yes. So there's definitely a world in which you love your job, you're excited to go to work, and that's great. And we should all Mm -hmm. aspire towards that. And then there's the dangerous element, which is passion is wrapped up in overwork and essentially Mm -hmm. being addicted to checking your work email. And that's really negative. So there's lots of research that shows that we're actually, if we work more than 50 hours a week, we're less productive as time goes on. Again, lots of research underscoring the importance of taking a break, taking a vacation. And if anyone, you know, that feeling of just being refreshed and being excited about your work again, it's a really important way to mitigate burnout. 
And it's actually essential not only to remaining happy on the job, but to remaining productive. And so caring less about your job doesn't mean don't care about it. It doesn't mean take a job you hate. It just means care more about yourself. So care more about practicing, setting boundaries, maintaining your personal connections. And also all of that, if you have a life outside of work that you enjoy and that you're cultivating, it creates what we call an emotional flack jacket, which is that at work, when your boss has a bad day or when you receive critical feedback, it's not the end of the world because Mm -hmm. you can go home and like your cat still loves you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have like a wonderful dinner with your friends and it doesn't become your whole sense of self is not wrapped up in like what you do at work, how things are going. It's just in any part of life, it's good to be able to have a little bit of emotional distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice and a really good reframing of the topic as a whole. That idea of it's not so much about not being passionate about your work. It's Mm -hmm. more about being passionate about the uh, the wholeness of your life, which includes inside of it your work, to maybe put it a certain kind of way. So I think that there are a lot of people who would not naturally describe themselves as being overly passionate about their about their work or their workplace. Or certainly I'm I'm thinking actually of Rick here, who's my regular guest on this podcast. He I don't think would ever kind of naturally describe himself as being a workaholic. But mm-hmm. if you found him in a in a really honest and earnest moment, uh, he would definitely come clean and say, Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a workaholic. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of attached to my work. So what are maybe some of the signs that somebody might be Let's. I'm not sure what the right language is here, and please, whatever you want to supply, kind of overly passionate, overly attached to their work environment without that kind of sense of healthy boundaries that you were talking about, other than simply, you know, working too many hours or, or something kind of more mechanical accounting stat like that. Yeah, it's really if you cannot turn off your work brain. So if you mm-hmm. are at dinner with your family and you want to be present, you want to be having a good time, and all you can think about is your email. And then you sneak mm-hmm. off to the bathroom multiple times to check your email. So it's it's kind of the same as any other addiction, which is when it starts to interfere and actually harm other parts of your life. And I, there's a lot of talk now about a digital detox and that when you go on vacation, yeah. you should never check your work email. I think it's fine to check your work email once in a while on vacation. I definitely do. I have days where I go in and just delete all the stuff that I don't need to care about that much because mm-hmm. I don't want to come back to this like wall of emails. <laughs> and so it's not like you can never check your work email. You can never think about work on the weekend. It's more that when you're trying to enjoy something that's not work, if you're unable to, if you're just crippled with anxiety, if you just feel this like deep compulsion to go back and keep working that's mm. when it's become unhealthy. And so, you know, I think work-life balance is a thing that's also thrown around a lot. It's very different yeah. for different people. And so you can be someone, like if you really love what you do and you just want to solve some problem on the weekend, fine, go for it if it brings you joy, you know? Um, but it's, it's when it starts to actually feel bad to you that it's become a problem and that you need to take some pretty proactive steps to say, I do need to set pretty distinct boundaries and I I need to figure Mm. out a way to distance myself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes good sense. And you just mentioned it there, this idea of a digital detox or Mm. the way that technology has kind of 
made the already difficult line between work and life even more complicated as time mm-hmm. has gone on. I remember actually being hired at my first job out of college and I got, I think much like you in that analyst position, 22, whatever it was, I remember being hired and getting a corporate BlackBerry, I think it was oh, for the first yeah. time. And I was really excited. I was like, I've made it. This is the thing. And uh, the, the person who handed it to me, I, I have this distinct memory of them basically kind of chuckling and saying something to the effect of, yeah, I'm not sure if you're going to feel that way for very long. That's so funny. And, yeah. And <laughs> things have only, of course, gotten much worse since then. So there's yeah. this always on relationship that a lot of us have with work. And I think that there are probably a lot of people, particularly those who are working in more kind of maybe traditional corporate environments, the kind of, we've sort of deconstructed the nine to five a little bit over the last 20 years, but let's say somebody who's in kind of a more traditional nine to five corporate environment. And there's that expectation that you're just always going to be in touch. It's definitely something that you guys explore in the book a lot. What are some of the things that that person can do to preserve their sanity and maybe even start to kind of shift their workplace culture just a little tiny bit, only if it's only in their immediate bubble, to kind of a more healthy relationship with always being in touch? Yeah, so I would I would say there's two pieces of advice. There's one which is for anyone, and then there's one if you're a manager or you have any sort of authority. So if you have authority or a manager it is you really set the norms on your team. And so just don't send emails on the weekend. You know, my manager, she will schedule it so that if she wants to send me an email, it comes 8 a.m. on Monday morning. And I think that's such a... That is the strongest signal to the rest of the team that like we value your weekend. This is not urgent. Your manager will not be inundating your inbox because often it's not something that needs to be responded to right away. But just... No, like seeing an email from your boss come in on Saturday, it's like, oh God, do I need to respond to this right away? And then especially Mm -hmm. if you're new, you're still feeling everything out. You can spend like three hours just figuring out how to respond to this email. And that's a big chunk of your time off. So I would say, again, if you're a manager, encourage your reports to take vacation and then really set an example. Mm. When you're on vacation, don't be frantically emailing them. Just shut it all off or set things that like time box schedule so that the emails come later. I think all that is really important. There's also something we explore in the book called... It's, it's like a night off policy, which is if you have enough people on your team, you can say that one person, you pick a day and then on that day, you are not checking email after 5 p.m. And the rest of the team will kind of cover you. And so I think that's also a nice, like, it's kind of sad that that's what it's come to. Yeah, seriously. But in some workplaces, like, that, it can be really nice. And it also actually builds team camaraderie to say, like, we're here for each other. You take Mm -hmm. your time. I'm going to get mine too. And we're going to support each other. If you're an individual contributor, so you're not a manager, I think a lot of it is about just setting expectations. Mm. So it's much harder to start and respond to emails at all hours of the day and then try and set boundaries than it is to come in and you don't even have to say anything. But it's just like, if you just don't really respond to emails after 8 p.m., normal people will respect that. And I think your teammates will really appreciate it because again, you are kind of setting an example. And so I would say, feel it out. But really, when you start a job, try to create the boundaries you want to create and then do a great job, 
respond within a reasonable time frame, but you don't have to respond immediately to every single email. And you'll probably be surprised at how people kind of just take it, you know? Yeah. I had a, a teacher once who gave me a great phrase and it was, uh, my job is to let people know what they're going to get from me, mm, basically. Oh, I, I want I to, that. yeah, I, I want to kind of manage expectations by being very, very clear around what they're going to get. And of course, I can mold myself a little bit to other people's expectations and boundaries and desires and so on. But fundamentally, my job is to be consistent in the delivery of what I think is kind of best for me and best for this particular environment. So I need to be a good communicator of that, Mm -hmm. but I also need to be fair to myself and I need to be clear about who I am and what you're going to receive from me. So we've already started to touch on this kind of boundaries topic a lot. And obviously Mm -hmm. healthy boundaries is a phrase that just about everybody has heard at this point. It's become very much kind of a catch-all phrase in the workplace. And I think that's certainly one reading of No Hard Feelings is the importance of establishing those healthy boundaries, whether they be between different kinds of emotions, between your emotions and other people's emotions, between your emotions and your ability to interpret facts accurately, uh, between your work and your play, and all those other things. So it's one thing to say that phrase, though, and it's kind of another to do it. So for somebody who maybe has a tough time establishing those boundaries, what are, for starters, some of the suggestions that you'd give to them? And also just from your you know, pretty significant experience here in building workplace culture, what tends to contribute to a healthier sense of those lines between the personal and the professional? These are great questions. <laughs> I think mm, this is something that... Yeah everyone I struggle with too, which is the ability to say no and the ability to kind of create a schedule that actually feels good for you. So I think the first thing is just remembering that you're not here to work for six months and burn yourself out. You are trying to have sustainable success. So for the book, I interviewed a ton of executives and the universal theme was taking time for yourself. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I think often we say yes or we take on more than we should because we feel like a need to prove ourselves and we feel like this is going to make me successful. And the truth Mm. is you prove yourself by doing good work and by having confidence. And Mm -hmm. no is a professional confidence. Mm -hmm. That's a great line. (laughs) I want to frame that. No is professional confidence. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I would just encourage all the listeners to take a moment and really reflect on the people that you've worked with, that you respected the most. And I'm guessing it's not the person that responded immediately to every email, said yes to everything. It's usually the ones that are just like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Or here's what I can do. (laughs) And so really trying to emulate those people. So keeping that in mind, it's also, it's the way to gain respect. It's the way to be successful for a long time. And then a lot of it just comes down to communication. So there's lots of research that shows the importance of transparency around a no. So it's just it is a fact that you can't do anything. You can't do everything. You can do anything, but not everything. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of times in decision-making, people are fine with whatever decision happens. I mean, not whatever, but within a reasonable boundary, Mm -hmm. as long as they understand the reasoning behind it. So if you say no, it's, it's important not to be like, no, I can't do that. You know, that's a bad way of communicating. But if you say like, look, I'm working on these other projects. I really don't have a ton of time for this. And then also remembering like there's something between yes and no. So you can say, 
I can't draft this for you, but if you put together a draft, I'm happy to set aside 15 minutes and edit it. Mm -hmm. So really seeing it not so much black and white and then communicating, why don't you have time for it? Communicating if you have time for anything, like putting a limit on it, not saying like, if you send it to me, I'll look at it being like, I will put 15 minutes on my calendar to edit it. I'm happy to help, but that's all I can do right now. Mm -hmm. And usually people are understanding of that. It's the communication element that's really important. And to your question about how do you create an office environment that supports these things, it's just doing them, you know? It's like setting the example. It's kind of shocking how sort of our basic instincts are just to like do what the people we respect do and kind of belong and adhere to the norm. And there's definitely like a dark side to that. But when when we're trying to encourage positive behaviors, it's just really valuable. Like if you communicate the other person will realize, even if it's subconsciously, oh, that felt really good. And then they will go and mirror that behavior. So mm-hmm. just remember that anything you do like ripples throughout an organization. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I just want to put a flag really quickly in two of the things that you said, because I think that they're wonderful pieces of information and great ways to approach this question. And the first one is, is just what you said before about that importance of confidence. And the idea that you can offer a confident no fundamentally to something and exploring, I think, ourselves what our relationship with our work is in terms of how it implicates kind of our nature as a person. And maybe to put it a certain kind of way, are we approaching our work life from a place of kind of fullness or a place of emptiness? Because if you feel kind of empty around it, if you don't feel confident, if you feel under pressure in a variety of different ways, then it's often really challenging to set those healthy boundaries. But if you have that sense more of fullness, which is something that we've really explored on this podcast, developing individual skills over time to feel more internally resourced, you can approach these questions with a very different energy. And of course, if you're in a workplace environment that is constantly making you feel kind of empty, well, you know, that's probably not such a good thing. It's, it's something to explore. And then secondarily, just what you said earlier about uh, the value of a conditional yes or conditional no, that everything doesn't have to be very, very black or white. So you can kind of hedge with these things a little bit more and again, kind of keep on establishing those clear lines between yourself and other people. That was great. You said it so much more eloquently. <laughs> like, well, I got to write this I had, down. The, <laughs> I had the benefit of being able to listen to it while you were saying it, right? And kind of process yeah. it through. But no, I, I think they're awesome lessons. And I think it, it, it really speaks to a lot of the underlying issues that we have inside of the workplace today. And kind of speaking to communication, which is one of the things that you mentioned there for a moment. One of my favorite chapters in the book focuses on decision making and the role that good kind of emotional processing plays in good decision-making. And one of the things that I appreciated about the book is that I think it would be easy to view it as certainly by reading kind of the, the flap jacket on it uh, as just, you know, go emotions, everyone be more emotional at work, whatever it is. And you guys are really far more nuanced about it, which I think is great. And you share this idea that even though emotions are an important part of the workplace, not all emotions are created equal. So in that chapter, you distinguish between what you call relevant and irrelevant emotions, particularly with regards to kind of internal processing and external communication. So how can people kind of go through a process of distinguishing which of their feelings fall into each category? And what did you mean by those kind of two big headlines? Yeah, so relevant emotions are those that are central to the decision at hand and contain useful information. So 
great example is if you have a job offer and the idea of not taking the job offer fills you with regret, that's very tied to the decision. And it's important. Like maybe you will regret not taking this and it's a, it may be risky, but it's a risk you should take. Uh, emotion that is not relevant is if you just sat in traffic for two hours, you're incredibly cranky, and then you come to the decision and you let that emotion stick its tentacle into your decision-making. Your crankiness has nothing to do with whether you should take the job or not. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to distinguish the two. And one of my favorite pieces of research that we cite in this chapter about decision-making looked at investors and we tend to think of investing as very rational, you know, and, and there's more and more, it's like code and machine learning and I don't even yeah. know. <laughs> and yet the investors that at the moment of making a decision of whether they should invest or not, that just really acknowledged all the emotions they were feeling, good or bad, relevant or irrelevant, made much better investment decisions. And the idea mm. there is if you're just suppressing everything, you're letting these emotions that have nothing to do with the decision cloud your view. And so the advice we give is when you sit down to make an important decision, write a list of every single thing you're feeling in that moment mm. and then go through the list and say, is this because of the decision? Is this just something that I should set aside if possible? So again, regret is usually tied to the decision and indicates that maybe this is something you should do. Often it's just like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, <laughs> I had too much <laughs> coffee. And it's still important to write that down because then it's like, if it's I'm tired, then maybe you should sleep on it. If it's I'm hungry, then get a snack and come back to the decision. But you don't want to make these rush decisions. Another one is anger. Anger makes us hot-headed. We're less likely to listen to advice. We're more likely to choose the high-risk option. So if you're upset about something, if you just had a fight with your partner knowing that you had that and that it might be biasing your judgment is so key to making sure that you're not like rushing into something. So I think the biggest piece of advice there is just like make a list and then figure out, is this emotion tied to the thing and therefore I should kind of analyze it or do I really need to put it to the side? Yeah, great advice. And I think that that's probably where back in the day, that idea of kind of leave your emotions at the door came from, right? That idea of we bring into a space with us all of these other thoughts and feelings and which of those thoughts and feelings are kind of more useful for us versus what are the ones that are just kind of getting in the way of good decision making. But in the process of doing that, you can leave a lot of good stuff at the door as well. And uh, including all of the good psycho-emotional communication that each of us individually brings to the table and our unique character as people. Of course, that unique character really contributes how we work with others. And that's, of course, a big topic that you guys go into is effective communication, particularly in groups. One of the key traits that you name in terms of communicating inside of big workplace environments or small groups is the importance of psychological safety, which you really emphasize in one of the chapters. Would you mind explaining what that is and kind of why it's so important? Yeah, psychological safety exists when we feel safe, asking questions, making mistakes, admitting we made a mistake, seeking help, sharing ideas. And so if you've ever sat in a meeting, I think pretty much everyone is familiar what it's like to not experience psychological safety in the workplace, which is you're sitting in a meeting, there's a brainstorm, an idea pops into your head. And instead of having the confidence or the security and knowing that your team will receive it well to throw that idea out and share it, you instead immediately second guess yourself. You say like, should I say anything? How are people going to interpret what I say? Is this a dumb idea? 
what will people think of me? That's when psychological safety does not exist. And so then you can clearly start to see why it's so detrimental when you don't have it. Because people, companies spend so much money trying to find top talent and recruit them and interview them and give them an offer and send them the t-shirt. Like it's just a big process. And if you find someone who's amazing and then they sit in that meeting and they don't feel like they can share everything that makes Mm -hmm. them amazing, Mm -hmm. why did you spend all this money bringing them into the room? And this is also... I think what so many diversity initiatives totally miss is like, oh, we have women Mm. or we have like minorities or we have this other, you know, members of this other group. They're here, but like having a seat at the table and having a voice at the table are really different than having that voice be heard. And so, yeah, I I get really passionate about this. And then I just... No, that was great. (laughs) I mean, I think that 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 articulation you had right there, which I think is... Again, just such a good way to put it. The the difference between having a seat at the table and having a voice at the table. So yeah, please continue. I just think that that's such a great way to summarize a, a very dense literature on you know cross-cultural workplaces and uh, as you were saying, creating a more open environment to people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, whatever it might be. And, and one of the things that really stuck with me in reading through it was kind of the way that people heard, which we know naturally happens all the time. As you were saying earlier, if you're just kind of a good example of something, other people will follow in your footsteps. Well, in the same way, if you're in a meeting room and there are seven people expressing one viewpoint and you're the eighth person with a different viewpoint, it can feel extremely awkward and uncomfortable to express that viewpoint, whether it's one based on racial identity or gender identity or cultural background or expertise. You were talking, I think, about having something along the lines of having, you know, seven visual designers in one room and one engineer. And the engineer may or may not be comfortable expressing their different viewpoint. But that unique viewpoint could actually bring so much new and valuable information to the conversation. So yeah. Two things that popped into my mind as you were speaking. One is There's so much evidence. And again, this is like what diversity and inclusion efforts get really wrong, which is people like to say like, oh, diversity is always better. And that's actually not true. And this is not against diversity, but there's research that shows that if you have a diverse group and there's not psychological safety, performance goes down because people are like afraid to to share. They don't know how it's going to be perceived. And suddenly everyone's like a little uncomfortable. But if there's psychological safety performance is way, way better than if you have a homogenous group. So it's like, yes, diversity can lead and does lead to better innovation, better performance, just better everything if you create a space in which people feel comfortable sharing. And it's when you think about it, it makes total sense. Again, to your point, like the engineer, the woman, the whoever, if they're not sharing, then you just have this person that like you are preventing from being amazing. And that, like, Mm -hmm. yes, that's going to hurt performance because they're going to feel bad. They're not going to encourage their friends to join the organization. And they're probably going to leave the organization because no one wants to just like constantly be sitting in a pool of anxiety or just feeling left out or feeling not included. Again, given that we spend so much time at work. And then one quick tip that I'll give, because you mentioned it can be really intimidating if you're the only person with a certain viewpoint to share that. So one thing that... I've seen companies implement with some successes in a meeting, every single meeting, one or two people are assigned the role of devil's advocate. 
And so it's about like making descent okay. And you should rotate mm-hmm. who this is. Like you don't want to always be like, yeah. you are the devil's advocate <laughs> again, again, because now you're just the naysayer. But it's about... I mean, that was basically me in the meeting anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I'd fill the role very naturally. Like, I'm very familiar with that one. But imagine if you had had a dissenting opinion and then someone else was yeah. forced to also have one. And so it's a good exercise mm-hmm. in empathy. It helps people like have to adopt kind of a different mindset. And then it makes just dissent more normal. And it's not so mm-hmm. much like, yeah, you have this really terrifying, I have to stand up and I see these people every day and everyone's ready to go. And I'm the one that wants to push the brakes. You know, I think in like, I don't even know, like 70% of cases, you're just not going to push the brakes. And that could be yeah. really bad. Like that actually can be horrible for the team and for the organization. Yeah, I think there have been so, I mean, geez, there have been countless examples through corporate history (laughs) of one slash many people in a meeting room kind of thinking to themselves, man, I'm not so sure if this is a great idea. And then that voice being kind of battened down because to your point, there's sort of this culture of going with the flow, saying yes, not being negative, whatever it might be. And of course, it's a balancing act. There are some examples of workplaces. I know that there are a lot of very high-level business consulting companies that have, from time to time, been viewed as excessively dissenting or or having too much of a culture of kind of personal critique Mm. or whatever it might be. But I think a lot of the time what happens is that there is kind of an elephant in the room idea. Often in my experience, and please let me know what yours is, I don't want to over-infer from my own. You'll have one kind of managerial type who will have a really strong take. And then you'll have two or three people who are maybe a little bit like one step down Mm. from that person. And they have some skepticism, but they're not quite sure how to express that skepticism in an emotionally safe way, Mm -hmm. both just for the natural interpersonal interaction that you're having with another human. And also for the power dynamic mm. that's in play. You know, it's kind of scary to disagree with somebody who's higher up the org chart mm-hmm. than you are. Yeah. So quickly, before I answer that question, I think it's Please, super yeah. real that dissent, it can become negative, right? And yeah. if, if everyone's constantly like, this isn't going to work, or I don't see this happening, that's also not good. And so at a company that I worked, we implemented the rule, which was a colon suggestion. So you could dissent mm. as much as you wanted, but you, even if it was a bad idea, even if it was half-baked, you had to add a colon and then suggest a solution. I like that a which, lot. Yeah, yeah, which kind of... It, first of all, the people that are just going to sit there and be like, no, 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 they're not going to say anything because they don't actually have a solution. <laughs> they just like to shoot other people down. And then it, it does like generate some good conversation. And then to the question about how do you dissent or how do you flag issues within sort of this strange power dynamic, I would say... My first message is to the manager, which is like lots of research shows the higher you get up in an organization, the less you know what's going on in the organization and with your customers. Mm -hmm. So the clearest example is like CEO of Starbucks has far less of a clue what's going on with customers than a barista. Um, Because the barista is like day in, day out, fielding crazy requests, hearing the angry customers, hearing the like excited customers. And so as a manager, you, your job is to like innovate, fix problems, come up with new things. And you actually don't have the information you need to do that. The people who have that information are below you in the organizational chart. And so it's, it's actually like in your interest 
to ask them to say like, do you have any feedback? Like, what do you think? And, and really make it like create explicit space so that they feel comfortable sharing. On the other side, I think it goes to communication. So if you just say, this isn't going to happen or like customers are mad about this thing, it can come across as not come across, but I could see like, if you don't have a great relationship with your manager, it's easy for your manager to be like, no, or okay, thanks. And then move on. So I think it's providing specific examples. So if you say like customers are upset about this thing, here's what this one person said. I had this other interaction. Like it just, you create a compelling case for yourself. And then also if you think something's not going to work, same thing. So like, why wouldn't it work? What specific evidence do you have in favor of what you're saying? And then at the end, suggesting a solution. So I think if you don't have this comfortable relationship, it's really about just like you want to create a bulletproof case for yourself (laughs) where like it's really hard for someone to sit across from you and be like, I'm going to discard all this evidence that you've just presented to me. And it still might happen. But like most of the time, it's usually like, oh, wow, interesting. I should know about this. Yeah, no, I think that those are great pieces of advice. And as an aside, just about everything that we're talking about here, it's been focused on discussion of in the workplace, but man, just from personal experience, and also I think anyone listening would attest to it, just about all of this bleeds into our personal relationships as well. Yeah. So this is quote unquote work advice, but that <laughs> idea of having, you know, colon suggestion, man, you can take that into your personal yeah. life as well. Yeah. And the dynamic of being too much of a corrector versus too much of a go with the flower. Are you expressing your own needs and ideas clearly relative to your partners, whatever it might be? So even if you're not necessarily working in an environment where this information is directly applicable, I think it's very applicable to all of our personal lives. Yeah. So I just want to kind of say that really quickly for anyone who's listening. And, and just these styles of good communication are fundamentally just good. You know, we have to talk with people in the course of our lives. So we might as well do it as skillfully as we can. As we kind of move toward the end here, I want to kind of run an idea by you that we've sort of touched on a little bit, and I'm still kind of working through how I think about it. So I would love your uh, your input and your advice. What we're really talking about throughout this conversation has been comfort with challenging emotions. You know, how do I express sadness? How do I express frustration or dissent or disappointment or whatever it might be? And my experience, not all the time, but a couple of times in sort of more traditionally corporate workplace environments has been really feeling that there was this sort of culture of what the phrase that's coming to me here is forced positivity. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere. And that kind of energy where every email begins and ends with exclamation points, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Everyone is so excited to get to work and they're, wow, really looking forward to it all the time. And there's just this sort of projected enthusiasm for everything that, I mean, maybe it was just me, maybe it's just my temperament, but to me at least, tended to feel a little bit strained. And in that kind of a culture, in my experience, expressing any sort of authentic challenging emotion any of the ones that we named really, gets really hard. And sometimes you'll see people where there's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back and suddenly there's this big emotional blow up or they just quit all of a sudden or they feel completely overwhelmed or whatever it might be. So in your work here in the space with organizations in general and your experience, is this something you've seen? Am I kind of over-inferring from my own experience? And you know, if so, what can we do about it? Yeah, so it's... 
definitely something that is very real. So there's a few values. I won't name the specific companies, but these are like their explicit (laughs) stated values. There's one focus on the positive, choose positivity, build a positive team. And in the book, we call this the positivity paradox, which is positivity is actually not something you can force someone to feel. And it's similar with happiness. And I think now more and more, there's research coming out and people understand like, oh, happier employees are more productive. You can't force someone to be happy. And lots of research shows that like when you put pressure, like when we put pressure on ourselves to make happiness the goal, it makes us miserable. When you force someone to be positive, you're actually forcing them to do something called surface acting or emotional labor, Mm, which is when what you're presenting is very different than what you're feeling. And that is exhausting. And that does lead to burnout. It does lead to these like explosive, I can't handle this anymore. It leads to people quitting. So from the organization's perspective, I can see that it's difficult because you you also don't want to create an office environment where it's like, we're all miserable. (laughs) (laughs) None of us want to be here. Right. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that the, the happiness that matters is the longer term happiness, which is that generally I would recommend this is a good place to work. Generally, I feel like good about the work that I'm doing. I feel positive emotions on the job most of the time. But most of the time is different than all of the time. And so there still needs to be space. There's also a lot of research that shows that like what we find meaningful often doesn't make us happy. So like the jobs, so jobs that rank high in levels of meaning are like surgeon or like social worker or these jobs that we actually think of as like incredibly stressful and hard to do. And so really thinking about like there's happiness, but meaning is also a powerful driver of motivation. And so meaning comes when you have vulnerable moments when people, when you're allowed to cry sometimes, when you're allowed to express yourself. And you know, like you you can't have happiness without sadness. It's like for anyone who watched the, what's the Pixar movie? I'm blanking on the name. Inside Out? Yes. Is that what yeah. you're thinking of here? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. It's one of my first recommendations it's to so people. It's so good. Yeah. Um, but, but it's just like, if you want a positive workplace, part of that is you need to give people space to also feel down and like talk about it. And that's actually what like processing it helps us then return to a better state and feeling like we got out of this and now we can be more positive. And so, yeah, like the most negative workplaces are actually those that like force you to feel something all the time. The phrase that you offered there, which is that uh, the the happiness that matters is that long-term happiness. And then also the connection between, there are kind of two sorts of happiness and more psychological reasoning. There's eudaimonic happiness and there's hedonic Mm -hmm. happiness, as you're probably familiar with. And a lot of what you're talking about is kind of the difference between the two and our expression of them inside of the, the workplace, how we might have this very sort of, as you were saying, superficial forced emotional acting. But when that's really out of alignment with where we're at internally, that's just really exhausting. And, you know, as you're saying here throughout this conversation, getting in touch with that and being sort of authentic about it is a huge part of being a capable actor in those environments. And so as we wander toward the end here, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this whole conversation with us. And I'd like to close with another question that we tend to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. You sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Knowing everything that you do now, if you could kind of go back in time and speak to yourself as a, as a child, as a young adult, maybe as that 22-year-old working that job, whatever is resonant for you, what would you want to say? What would you want to communicate to that person or leave them with? 
Yeah, I think it's just, it is okay to have a bad day. And I, and this was part of the suppression that I did so much of for a large part of my life, which was, I thought if I had a depressed day or depressing moment, then I would like layer all this judgment on top of it and say, now I'm a depressed person and this is a static trait and it's never going to change. And that's just not true. Like you can go through, it's like the whole, it gets better. Like it gets better. Mm, it's going to get worse too. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. This is part of life. And, and there's, when we feel bad about feeling bad, you only make yourself feel worse. So I also in the past, like I would have some anxiety and instead of saying like, okay, why am I anxious? What can I do? I would just be like, oh God, I'm so anxious. And then I would become anxious about being so anxious and it would just build into this huge ball of emotion. And so it's just like giving yourself permission to feel, giving yourself permission. You know, if you need to take a Sunday and like lie in bed all day and binge watch a show and eat ice cream, maybe you need that. Like that's fine. It's really okay, yeah. yeah. And that, that doesn't mean anything about you. It's not like a static trait. It's not who you it's just like, and then you can get up on Monday and be a boss, you know, like you can do both things and that's totally normal. And I, I think too often we judge ourselves for what we feel as opposed to thinking like, maybe that, maybe I just need to slow down. Maybe I need to binge watch this show right now. <laughs> I think it's a great piece of advice. I think it's a really good lesson to leave people with. And if I had that communication to give to myself, I think that just what you were saying, that idea of it gets better. And also, it's really okay. Yeah. You know, with whatever you're, whatever that means to you, yeah. it's really okay. And I just think that's such a great piece of advice for anyone who's uh, going through some more challenging experiences in life. So, Liz, again, thank you for taking the time to do this One, today. Yeah, please go ahead. Um, which, as I said, it gets better and it also gets worse. And I meant it gets better, but even when it's better, you're going to have like, you're still going to cry and you're still going to feel a little sad. And overall, it can be a lot better. But I think it's just this acknowledgement of you're not, it's like the hedonic treadmill. Like you're never going to be happy all the time. It's just impossible. Yeah, no, it's it's deeply true. I feel like we could do kind of a whole other conversation <laughs> here because we went into some really great stuff. And I just, again, you know, thank you for being so giving with your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Liz Fosslane. We explored topics related to her wonderful book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, which she co-authored with Molly West Duffy. We began by talking a bit about Liz's personal background, including how she transitioned into this exploration of emotion at work. One of the big themes throughout the conversation was the importance of creating healthy boundaries. Liz gave some really good concrete suggestions on how we as individuals can do that. One of the things that she mentioned that I thought was particularly powerful was simply the importance of feeling confident in saying no from time to time and how the people that we often look up to in organizations are not the ones who are always saying yes. They're people who feel confident and centered in expressing their own opinions, including when that opinion is, I need a little time here to take a break, or when I have to unplug for an evening, or I'll see you on Monday, whatever that might be. We talked a lot about how to establish those boundaries with other people, Some of the tactics included getting really specific about where our emotionality was coming from and putting a real source and a name to different emotional experiences so that we could better communicate them with other people, which connects right back to being clear with others about our needs. 
This also ties into distinguishing what she terms relevant and irrelevant emotions. There are some emotions, like regret, for instance, that can be really indicative during decision-making. If you really regret something, there's a pretty good chance that, well, you wish you had done it differently. Then there are emotions like simple anxiety from getting to work a little bit late or feeling tired or hungry or angry, whatever it might be, that can actually intrude on the process of effective decision-making. And we all know that kind of intuitively, but doing it in the moment, really getting granular about distinguishing between which of the emotions I should be listening to and which of the ones I shouldn't can be a really powerful practice. One of the topics that we spent some time with toward the end of our conversation was the importance of psychological safety, particularly in groups. When people feel heard by others, when they feel that it's safe to express their opinion, and when they feel that, as Liz put it beautifully, they have not just a seat at the table, but a voice at the table, it can be a real game changer for group function. And you really get to capture the value of having diversity rather than just having a more varied workforce for the sake of filling out your spreadsheet or being able to promote it to your investors at the next quarterly report. One of the interesting things that Liz named was that diverse workforces are more successful than homogenous ones, but only if those workforces feel comfortable expressing their diversity in a variety of different ways, including being in a meeting and sharing a contradictory viewpoint or being comfortable saying, hey, I'm not sure that I agree with that. And she gave some very concrete suggestions for how we can do that. One of the ones I really liked was this idea of colon suggestion, where everyone should feel empowered to disagree. But when you disagree, you have to add a suggestion of some kind, even if it's kind of a ridiculous one. You have to attach an idea of your own to your dissension. We then closed with forced positivity and that feeling in some workplaces where everyone is just so excited to see you all the time, even if they're going through a really challenged experience. The takeaway from that was that, you know, we all have varied emotional lives. Things are not always rosy. And when we feel like we have to be happy all of the time, that act actually becomes extremely exhausting for us and can quickly lead to burnout and big emotional flare-ups. Creating an environment in the workplace or, frankly, in the home where it's okay to express negative emotions is a really important part of creating a stable and healthy emotional environment. So the book is No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. It's truly one of the most concrete, actionable, practical books that I've read on the topic of emotions in the workplace. If you would like to learn more about it, I've included a link to the book in the description of today's podcast. I'd also like to take a moment to remind you about Dr. Rick Hansen's new course, Just One Minute. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a review. Doesn't cost you anything, and it really does help us out. It's one of the best ways for you to support the show if you've been enjoying it so far. So until next time, thanks for listening. 